Section 19 of 11 Possible Cases by Various. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason in Panama. 11 Possible Cases by Various. A Tragedy of High Explosives by Brainerd Gardner Smith. Chapter 3. April 2. It is more than two weeks since I wrote in my journal. I have been ill. A sort of low fever that kept me in my cabin. Nothing serious, Uncle John said, and so it has proved, except that I am very weak. Uncle has been kind, but most of his time has been devoted to that woman. He says it is a very interesting case. She became conscious a few days ago and has gained strength since. She will be on deck in a day or two, he thinks. I'm anxious to see her. I want to see if there really is anything familiar in her face. It's fortunate for her that clothing of Mrs. Raymond's is on board. She'd be in a plight else. I asked Uncle John what her name was. He looked queer and said that he didn't know. Strange that he hasn't asked her. The sailor, Jones, seems quite recovered and has taken his place among the crew. We were rather short-handed, and the captain was glad enough to have him. He can be of service. But the woman can be nothing but a trouble, to me at least, for I must see her daily, I suppose. And yet I am anxious to see her too. This fever has left me rather childish as well as weak. April 3. Thank God for these pages to which I can talk, else I should go mad, I think. Could you read these words as they flow from my pen, mother, you might well wonder whether I had not indeed gone mad. But I will be quite calm when I tell of what fate, or Satan, or whatever evil power it is, has done for me. I was sitting on the deck this morning, still very weak, when I heard footsteps behind me, and Uncle John's voice saying, Good morning, Arthur. I turned and saw him standing near me, and leaning on his arm, Helen Rankin. I write these words calmly enough now. Can you imagine what I felt when I saw her? I staggered to my feet, muttered some incoherent words, and would have fallen had not Uncle John sprang to my side and caught me. Why, what's the matter, Arthur? Calm yourself, my boy. Is it possible that you know this young lady? By a supreme effort of will, aided by the memory of that day when we last parted, I drew myself up and bowed, and I said that I had had the great honor of once knowing Miss Helen Rankin, and that I had had no idea that it was she we were fortunate enough to have rescued. Uncle looked at me in wonder as I said these words with sneering politeness. The girl looked at me questioningly, but there was no shadow of recognition on her face. Then your name is Helen Rankin? said Uncle John kindly, turning toward the girl and speaking as though to a little child. A troubled look passed over her face, and then she said quietly, I do not know. I cannot remember. Do you know this gentleman, Mr. Arthur Hartley? he asked in the same kindly way. Again the troubled look, an apparent effort to seize some elusive thought, and then again the voice I knew so well but now so unnaturally calm. I do not know him. 
I stood aghast at what seemed the consummate acting of a heartless and conscienceless woman, and yet on the instant I saw that there was no acting there. Let me stop a moment, mother, and describe her. You remember how beautiful she was, with that rich, dark beauty you once spoke of as Italian? It was that beauty that enslaved me. You remember that I have written of her appearance as she lay on the deck the day she was saved. The days of illness and quiet in the cabin below had almost obliterated all the ravages done by wind and sun and sea. The olive cheeks were a little darker than of old, and the hands browner. The face was not quite so pure and oval as when you saw it last, the color of lip and cheek not quite so vivid. The large brown eyes had lost the sparkle and the changing light that once pierced my boyish, foolish heart. Clad in a simple gown, belted at the waist and hanging in folds to the deck, her dark hair parted across her broad forehead and confined in a simple knot, and with a strange calm on the face that once expressed her varying moods as they came and went, she seemed to me to be another, a better, and almost unearthly Helen. Come to me here to atone for the great wrong that she had done me, and, for the moment, I forgot my hate. My uncle gave his arm to Helen, and they walked the deck while I watched them. What did it mean, this failure of Helen, to recognize me? Was I right in thinking the girl to be Helen Rankin? Yes, I could not be mistaken. That graceful walk, some of its old-time spring and elasticity gone, to be sure, was the walk of Helen. The turn of the lovely neck, the pose of the head were hers. Then the story of the sailor Jones, the forecastle gossip that she was going out to India to join her soldier lover, how well it tallied with what she had told me on that fatal day when she spurned my proffered love. But I would not dwell more on that. I will not now. I must force myself to forget, just for a little time, the past, that I may solve the mystery of the present. My head throbs. My brain is in a whirl. April 4. After writing this, I threw myself into my berth and tried to think over clearly the strange occurrences of the day. I was aroused by Uncle John asking me if I felt well enough to take a turn with him on deck. I joined him at once, and we paced the deck without speaking. It was a lovely night and the stars filled the heavens. At length Uncle John said, Arthur, here's a very remarkable case. This poor girl has lost her memory completely, and no wonder after her terrible sufferings. She cannot remember an event that happened before she opened her eyes in the cabin below. She can talk well, reads readily, shows the breeding of a lady, but as far as the past is concerned, she might as well be a weak old baby. You say that her name is Helen Rankin. Who is Helen Rankin? Where did you meet her? Uncle John had never known why I was so ready to give up my dreams of artist life and join him in his Australian scheme. I told him the whole story of my infatuation for Helen and her heartless perfidy. He listened intently. When I had finished, he said, My boy, let me say one thing, first of all. On your own evidence, forming my opinion solely from what you have told me, I think you have done a good girl injustice. I don't believe that Helen Rankin coquetted with you. Like many a young fellow before you, you thought that the frank friendliness of a young woman who looked upon you as a boy 
though perhaps not your senior in years, was encouragement to make love to her. She thought that you knew of her engagement, so she said, and felt a security that misled you. You are not the first lad that has had such an experience and cursed all women, and vowed that he'd never trust one again. I'll trot your children on my knee yet. Well, so much for the Helen of the past. Now for the Helen of the present, for we might as well call her Helen as anything else. But she is Helen. Helen Rankin, I can swear it, I interrupted. Well, well, so be it. I confess it looks so. I have taken a physician's liberty and examined her clothing for marks. I find it marked H.R. Isn't that proof enough? I asked eagerly. Yes, I dare say it is. Still, there are other girls whose initials are H.R. You and I have our task. It is to try and lead this poor girl back to the past. The awful experiences and sufferings of those days in the boat have affected her brain. Whether beyond cure or not, I know not. Now remember, Arthur, and Uncle John looked at me seriously, remember that even if this girl is the girl you think has wronged you, in fact she is not the same girl. She knows no more of you than she knows of me, whom she never saw in her life before. Another thing, if she is Helen Rankin, she is engaged to John Bruce. Perhaps she wears his ring on her finger. You and I as gentlemen are bound to do what we can to deliver her to him as speedily as possible. And I pray God that we may see her meet him in her right mind, the same free-hearted English girl that he is now dreaming of. I bowed my head, but could not say a word. Is Uncle John right? And have I been a weak, blind fool of a boy thinking that the girl, who was merely kind, was encouraging me to love her? I feel my face burn at the thought. I can't think clearly yet, but I see my duty. April 10. If I lacked proof of the girl's identity, I have it now. Yesterday we sat together on the deck for hours, I trying gently to lead her back to the past. Helen Rankin used to wear several valuable rings. Now she wears but one. You have a pretty ring, I said, pointing to her hand. How white and dimpled it used to be. How I longed to catch it on my lips, to kiss the pretty rose-tipped fingers. Her hand, now browned with wind and sun, but still dimpled and rosy-tipped. Like a child she laid it in mine. Yes, she said, it is a pretty ring. Where did you get it, Helen? I asked. I don't remember, she said quietly. May I look at it? I asked. Oh, yes, and she slipped it from her finger and laid it in my hand. What are these letters engraved within? I asked. Are there letters there? she said. I didn't know it. So there are. 2HR from JB. What does that mean? Don't you know? I asked. Oh, it was hard to see that calm face, to hear that calm voice. Better the blush and silent avowal of love, even for another, than that blank gaze. No, I do not know what those letters mean, she answered. Perhaps H.R. stands for your own name, said I. She smiled like a happy child. Yes, yes, that must be it. But the J.B., what do they stand for? I hesitated. Who would not? 
perhaps they stand for for john bruce i said slowly looking her steadily in the eyes she returned the gaze with the calm confidence of a child who is john bruce she asked i can't remember john bruce my heart gave a great leap then sank like lead am i then such a villain that i rejoice at the thought that helen rankin has no memory of her lover where is the hate that i boasted of it has gone it could not live before the calm eyes of the girl by my side but i had my duty to do john bruce is in india helen said i don't you remember and you were going to him and when you reached him you were to marry him he loves you dearly and you loved him dearly can't you remember the troubled look came to the dark eyes and ruffled the calm brow a faint flush passed across the rich warm cheeks then like a spoiled child she shook her head and said no 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 with a little pat of the foot and nod at the last no i do not know anything about it at all i do not know john bruce and of course i do not love him how could i but i know you arthur and i love you and she laid her hand in mine with a pretty smile i wonder if i'm the same man that set sail in the albatross six short weeks ago the arthur hartley then was a mad foolish boy the arthur hartley now is a grave serious man i feel that years and years have passed instead of weeks how much am i changed let this prove i held helen's hand in mine and answered gently i am very glad you love me helen i hope you will ever love me i certainly love you dearly i could not love a sister more she smiled at this and patted my hand and then we sat hand in hand without speaking until the shadows deepened on the deck may two you have been much in my thoughts of late dear mother but you will never know it you will never see these words i had thought not to write in this book again for i feel sure that it will never reach you but i seem to be urged to keep some record of our eventful voyage we are lying becalmed far in the southern atlantic so captain raymond says an awful storm that drove us is at its will and before which it seemed possible for no ship to live has driven us here far out of our course for six days we have been lying here motionless the storm that raged with such terrible fury seems to have exhausted all the winds of the heavens i never knew anything more thoroughly depressing than this calm even writing seems a task beyond me but indeed i am not as strong as before the attack of fever i do not seem to regain my strength i had in mind to describe the storm it is beyond my powers we lost a longboat and a quantity of spars two sailors one of them richard jones saved but to be lost were washed overboard and never seen again there is no change in helen she is apparently perfectly happy but it is the happiness of a contented and healthy child she takes much pleasure in being with me and sits by the hour with her hand in mine while i talk of the england that we have left and of the scenes of other days but nothing awakens the dormant memory uncle john has got back to his studies and talks explosives to anyone who will listen may seventeen here we lie still becalmed it is horrible what will come of it all 
the sailors are ready to take to the boats and quit the ship, and it requires all of Captain Raymond's firmness and kindness, for he is a kind captain, and all of Mate Robinson's sternness to deal with the crew. The steward tells me in great confidence that the men say that the albatross is bewitched, and that Helen is the witch that has done it. I can see that they follow her with black looks, in which is something of fear as she walks the deck, singing softly to herself and happy as a bird, the only happy soul aboard. Why should she not be happy? She has no past, looks forward to no future. She lives in the present, nature's own child. The ocean that gave her to us seems to have claimed her as its own. She loves the sea in all its moods. When the storm was at its fiercest and the huge waves swept over us, she insisted on being on deck, and clapped her hands and laughed in glee as thoughtless of danger as one of Mother Carey's chickens. Now, when this horrible calm is drawing the very life out of us all, she sings and laughs and is merry, or, when not merry, wears a calm, passionless, almost soulless face. I don't wonder that the men think that she is a witch. She has bewitched me more than once. End of section 19